This episode's brought to you by Notorious Fire Company. Firefighter owned and operated Notorious Fire Company manufactures and creates quirky and unique items for the fire service. Whether it's your stainless steel water bottles, tumblers, four-in-one koozies, you can decorate your emotional support water bottle with more than 100 different designs they offer so very much. From apparel to swag to stickers, they got you covered. Check them out at NotoriousFire.com. That's N-O-T-O-R-I-O-U-S, NotoriousFire.com. And check them out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at NotoriousFire. And this month with the podcast, if you use coupon code Fire Radio June 2023, that is Fire Radio June 2023, you'll get free shipping on all orders within the U.S. So check them out, NotoriousFire.com. Lenny and the crew, they're making great stuff. And I have to tell you, with the summer upon us, the sticker packs are out of control. You got everything from Star Wars to pinups and everything in between. Slap them on your beer fridges, your coolers, and your tumblers and celebrate the summer in style with Notorious Fire. A good supporter and longtime friend. We're happy to have him on the podcast with us. Check him out, NotoriousFire.com and coupon code FIREADIOJUNE2023 for free shipping all across the U.S. Hey, everyone. Jeremy, National Fire Radio. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a week or two for new recordings. I've just been super busy on my schedule. We've been doing some replays. We've been doing some other types of content. But I'm back at it today. Today's exciting. Rob Ramirez, 22 years, Captain Margate, Florida, currently assigned to a truck company, a member of Florida Task Force Number 2, teaches around the country at all these conferences. He's published. He puts his word out there. He talks about the Mayday mindset. Rob Ramirez, welcome to the show, bro. What's up, my brother? Thank you for having me. It's a blast. I'm looking forward to being here. Um, Your show is something I've been looking forward to doing for a while. Awesome. Uh, we've never been able to cross paths, and yeah. I'm excited. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we were able to find time. I'm glad that uh, every these stars aligned, and we got you, uh, got you to spend some time with me today. I think your message is strong, and I want to talk about that. But before we hop into the whole Mayday mindset and and really what you preach and what you talk about and train about hands on and so on, I just kind of want to get the backstory a little bit about you. I mean, you're you're so very busy, not just in the firehouse but also teaching and sharing the good word and doing all those other things that so many do to propel this job forward. Where did that start for you? Like, why are you giving back so much more than maybe the next guy? Why are you putting yourself out there and sharing your experience and knowledge to promote this job forward? You know, uh, Jeremy, thanks for the questions. As introspective as I try to be and find out, you know, where does this drive come from? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing the other? Why does this matter to me? Um, as, as men, as human, we can't control what matters to us and what doesn't. You know, that paradigm is something that is built into us at some point in life. And that paradigm of mine of creating uh, better environments for other people, being a servant, uh, being of service to others, uh, goes way beyond just like running calls for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I, lo- I love firemen. I love uh, my family. I'm sure that they love theirs. And the drive that keeps me going, my motivation to teach members how to learn appropriately, how to self-rescue appropriately, how to respond to a firefighter down emergency uh, the best way possible with uh, understanding the, you know, the limitations of human behavior and response to stress. Um, those things were so near and dear to me. And I'm so passionate about it. I just want everybody to hear it. And I, it's something that I can do 
without be, getting tired of doing. And it's probably the only thing in my life besides being a father that I can compare it to. That's pretty wild. I mean, what were you like that, though, growing up as well? Like, you know, I mean, the influence of the fire service, where did that come into your life? Uh, Jeremy, the answer is no. I was not like that for anything in my life, man. Mm. I was a kid that played sports. I loved playing sports. Sports kept me in school. Sports got me through high school. Uh, that, that you know, they dangled that carrot in front of me yeah. where you need to maintain a GPA of 2.0 or higher in order to stay on the team, and that's what kept me in school. Uh, my parents were both <laughs> hardcore s- workers. <laughs> I'm the same way. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, man. That was exactly me as well. Your parents. Exactly. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What, what about your no, parents? No, dude. We're the same, honestly. Like, we're like, you know, um, a lot of us come from that type of background. And uh, being on that team meant so much to me. Yes. And um, that's where I found that's where I found my happiness. And uh, at some point, you know, my parents being two blue collar workers. Yeah. Uh, my mom, my mom's a nurse. My dad was a uh, rest in peace. My dad was a butcher his whole life. Cut, wow. He cut meat for a living. Love that. Um, Freaking love that. Yeah. They man. taught you work we, ethic. They worked their asses off. Yeah. And um, that's all I ever saw them working their asses off. And wanted to be part of a team. And when I first got exposed to the fire service, somewhere around the 11th grade, junior year of high school, and baseball fell through my fingers with a that wasn't going to be my future. Mm. Um, it was the next. It was the next best thing. And thank God I did it because it's the most consistent uh, happiness I ever had in my entire adult life. I got on when I was uh, 21. Oh, and I'm, I'm 44 years old now. Yeah, buddy. Well, let's talk. I want to break this down real quick because I, I think there's something very much to people that play organized sports growing up that when sports consumes you as a, as a kid, right, coming up through elementary, you play recreation, then you play like middle school ball, then you go to high school, you play high school ball, whatever it is, football, baseball. There's something about being a part of a team. Right. Where it the sports fuels you to do better in every other aspect of your life. You have to get better grades. You're usually a better kid to your parents because you're disciplined. You have to go to the gym. You got to go to practice. So there's this organizational structure that now informally but formally pops up in your life. And I think there's so much to an institution like playing sports or a team effort young in life that sets up guys for the fire service in such a really good way. It really, really does. Uh, that mindset, that building, that we mindset, yeah. it's about us. It's about a team win. I, I got to be in position. I have to prepare to do my part for this team. Uh, wins matter. Losses hurt. Learn from them. Uh, there's coaches. There's a hierarchy there. Um, we suffer together. We win together. We lose together. Like all those things you learn at an early age uh, through sports. Um, it was something that got me in the right direction when I hit the fire academy for minimum standards. Like, I understood what standards meant. Like, if you don't throw a strike over a 17-inch plate in high school, you don't pitch. Yeah. You know, nobody makes a plate 18 inches for you. It's like that old coach saying, you know. Um, if you they don't expand the plate for you, make it 18, 19 inches because you're a nice guy or you're the coach's son. You're going to have to throw a strike over 17 inches, and that's the standard, or you don't pitch. And I understood what it felt like to get cut from the from the varsity team. Hell yeah. Playing the, you know, all these things mattered to me. And when I got to the fire department, I knew that I had to hold up my own. When I got to the fire academy, I knew I needed to do my role. And being in position, understanding the hierarchy, and being part of a team um, it was just a natural transition for me. It wasn't foreign. Yeah. 
It makes sense. It makes so much sense that I'm sitting here almost not having the next question for you because I'm just listening to you the way you portrayed that. Because here's the thing. When you get into competitive sports, there's no more sunshine and roses that everybody matters. Recreation sports, growing up as a kid, everybody gets playtime. Everything's equal across the board. Everybody gets an eighth place trophy. But you know what happens when you get to a competitive league? We no longer hand out eighth place trophies. And you know what? You will get cut from the team. Like you said, if I can't throw that strike over a 17 inch plate you're not pitching like these are things that matter in life and that's why i firmly believe that an infrastructure like that growing up really sets a solid foundation for when you take that next step in entering the fire service because you hold yourself accountable and like you said you know where you fall in as a member of the team yep when your reward system that you know feeds your whatever drive you have it revolves around a team sport. You're going to be a good fireman down the road. Hell yeah. Job for you. Hell yeah, man. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Thank you for sharing that little bit of a story with us. That's fantastic. Then where you said the fire service came into your life around 11th grade. Is that what you said? So that's junior year yeah, of high ab- school. Absolutely. 11th grade. Uh, I joined what, uh, what down here we call the Explorer program or like yeah. cadet program. And uh, that got me going in that direction. What, how, like what, what were you looking for? Um, honestly, I was, uh, on a whim, uh, one of my buddies on the team with me, his dad was a firefighter down here in Miami. Oh, and, uh, and he was like, Hey, my dad's got this thing over the summer. If we're not playing ball, we can go hang out at the firehouse and ride the trucks, this, that, or the other. And I'm like, dude, I'm not interested in that. And, uh, the dame that he brought it up again and I took him up on the offer and I went out there and, and probably one, two, maybe three times tops. And I was hooked, hook, line and sinker, man. It was a fire department or bust. I love it. Was it was an awesome experience. Did your friend join? Yeah, he did, actually. We went to fire school together love in 96. That. That's cool. And uh, he ended up uh, getting on a little bit after me yeah. on his father's job and got to work with his father before he retired. Oh, that's even better. I love stories like that, man. But you know how often the story goes the other way, too? That the kid drags some of his friends along, and then their friends excel at it, and the other kid that invited them was kind of like, yeah, this isn't for me, and he fades away. But but yeah. he was the hook and got the others there. But I think, that's, I think that's so great, man. I really do. And so once you got in, you went through the academy, you got hired, you went through the academy. I mean, the hook was set, right? It was just, let's go immediately said like i had no idea where i was going to swim like what lane i belonged in what position i was going to love you don't understand you know when you get on the job you just have to have a freaking job and then down here we have to become paramedics as well okay so uh, i had to go to paramedic school i'm riding the bus i'm riding on i'm in an ambulance i'm making calls i'm i'm learning the medical component of the job uh, i'm learning uh, the fire side of the job and then you're always you're in a constant like a uh, uh, state of like robbing Peter to pay Paul yep. and trying to be as selfish as possible to learn every aspect of the job down here without even touching on getting into like, you know, on the rescue work, special operations side, which I'm heavily involved in now. But mm. that came later in my career, like around year four or five or six. But uh, those first four years, Jeremy, I was just, you know, whatever came my way, I just wanted to be good at the job because, again, going back to that baseball comparison or that team sport, when I got on the firehouse. There's guys that were like, you know, hitting fourth and, you know, batting cleanup and leading off that. And I wasn't one of them. I was in the bottom of that lineup, man. And I looked around and I knew, and, you know, you recognize where the talent is, especially when you I would make runs and go out there and see the way these guys were on scene. And I would always think to myself, again, that baseball sport mentality, how do I take that guy's position or how do I become a starter? And I, w- I was very aware that I wasn't a starter. 
and I needed to figure out how to do it. And, and that was my main focus, to be honest with you, the first couple of years was just being a vital component of that team and becoming a starter in that lineup to where the coach, a.k.a. the chief, would turn around and put me on a, put me on a job without thinking twice about it because he needed me on that field. Well, I'll tell you this. You just gave me the title of the podcast, How Do I Become a Starter? That's it, man. The baseball parallel right here is amazing because as you're talking, you're talking about the number three hitter, the cleanup, number four cleanup hitter, right? All these things matter in a lineup. And the leadoff guy, number one, the the guy out of the box, I mean, he's he's always a base hit guy. He's fast. He gets on base. Like, there's, there's a spot for individuals on the roster for what the roster needs to do on the on the ground the on the baseball field in this case the fire ground and i love yep. i love this compare have you done this comparison before between baseball and and fire service like i love this conversation this ne- is awesome never ever 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 i love it man <laughs> this is why i do this podcast i'm telling you right now like the last 10 minutes of this podcast has been amazing to me because it's a parallel that i can see so much resemblance in one another and man, it really just puts it in a good perspective, man. Thank you. That's freaking awesome. So let's talk about awesome. this a little bit. So your first couple of years in, you're a young kid, man, 21, 22 years old. You're taking in as much as you can. You want to learn as much as you can about the job, whether it's firefighting, paramedic. Mm-hmm. You're finding your place. You're finding where you belong in that lineup, right? At right. what point? At what point were you like, okay, I'm hooked. This is amazing. I'm finding my place. I'm finding my way. But there's more to it because you mentioned special operations for five year yeah. four, five and six. Right. Yeah. As your as your tenure progressed. What yeah. was it? Just the challenge of something more different? Yeah, the challenge became um, basically, you know, getting on that lineup. I got on the lineup uh, hitting in the top of the order. I got to the top of the order <laughs> and where I was, I, I was a good fireman. And then uh, somewhere around year four, five and six, I started taking these uh, rescue classes. Right. And it was my first time getting exposed to members from outside my region, from other departments. And I'm like, holy shit, their players are really good too. How do I get to, how do I get on that team? Yeah. And, and that got me going into uh, becoming a part of the fire service. And, and I just kept chasing and chasing and chasing, uh, you know, the, the, the guys, the all-stars, the heavy hitters, however, whatever you want to name them, man. And I would look up to these guys. They would be mentors from afar. I'd follow their careers. I'd hear about fires they make. I'd go to their classes. I'd watch them train and prepare. And I'd, and I'd emulate them on my, at my own firehouse, you know, you know, two, three cities away, two, three states away. And that's what really, really, that's when the hook was set for life. And it got me to the point where I'm at today, where I just became a constant learner and a, a lifelong student of the fire service. Yeah. So you, so you chased the ride outside of town as well then. So early on in your career, you were looking for more, which took you outside of your city boundaries then as well. Going to conferences, what? training, so on. 100%. And then uh, in 2005, so probably somewhere around year five, I got on the urban search and rescue program, mm. uh, which is very active down here in Florida because all the hurricanes yeah, we get. Yeah, of course. You know? Absolutely. And we, uh, we're a FEMA and a state team. So we can either deploy through D.C. or we deploy through just the state of Florida governor. Right. So we stay, we stay pretty busy in the Caribbean, South America, and, and in Florida and anywhere across the U.S. And getting on that team is like a full hiring process. And getting it was kind of like joining another fire department, Jeremy, because I got to meet now I met guys from all over the region 
who had been on the team for a long time. And these guys were the tip of the spear. Well, that's and it. And they're part right. of on that team. Yes, absolutely. You're now, you're now went from the, I don't want to say, no, let's just say that now this is the majors, man. Like this is like the all-star game of the major league, right? Cause you got guys from all over Florida that are assigned to this team. And typically yeah. guys that run on these USAR and FEMA teams are, um, you know, the cream of the crop when it comes to certain disciplines and rescue and communications, logistics, rescue, all that stuff, right? So that's impressive, brother. It really is. That's, and that 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 exposure brought me right back down to the ground, like, yeah. you know, big fish to the pond and then right back down to the bottom again. And I, and I thrive in that environment because I want to, you know, take every opportunity I can to learn and, and, and be above average and, and then be above above average and, it takes, and learn and grow. It takes a lot of self-awareness, though, to – as you continually move up the line in your career, whether it's a uh, firefighter to lieutenant to captain or a firefighter to uh, all of a sudden a FEMA team or USAR team, whatever it is, right? But as you progress in your career, it takes a lot of self-awareness to understand that when you get to that next chapter, that next position, you got to take that half a step back again and start from the ground up again. 1,000%. No one cares what you did yesterday. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, and no one cares what you did yesterday. Well, you is day one all over again, and and you have a whole entire team to prove that you belong on, and um, I understood that at every level. I understand it today, Jeremy. I'll go to a conference I've been to ten times, and if there's two new guys in the in the roster teaching with me, I still feel like I'm that year one kid who's got to earn my spot in that room. You know, I I've, I've never lost that. I I never want to be the guy that thinks that he belongs in every room. Yeah. You know, I I want to earn my seat. I don't want my seat given to me. I brother right there is a very powerful message that so many people need to hear, you know, earning your seat and it matters and it matters. And so when earning your seat and you're getting these opportunities, um, rescue operations becomes a passion of yours. So rescue operations became my passion and it's like everything else in life. You just get drawn to something, right? Some guys like to squirt water. Other guys like to force doors. Some guys throw ladders. And, and you got to just find what fits you. Uh, very few guys can be like freaking excellent at everything. I'm not saying they don't exist. You know, never say never or never say always. But they're out there. The unicorns are out there. They sure. can do everything good. They're like the human quint, right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, the, and, but I, I just found myself drawn to everything that had to do uh, with firefighter rescue and then survival. And then that later on, like everything else in life, evolved into its own thing. And uh, people were enjoying the message, and, which to me was uh, caught me off guard. So I knew it, in my head it made sense, but I wasn't sure how it was going to sound when it came out of my mouth. Yeah. And, um, you know, after some positive feedback and a couple of uh, opportunities to teach, you know, locally here and there, um, it became a thing where I, I kind of sold out to that subject matter. And, and I've told guys for a long time after doing this for a couple of years now, like, it's okay to sell out to something you're passionate about. You don't have to do absolutely everything in the fire service. If you can do one thing that you truly, truly love and be competent at everything else, but sell out to that one thing that you can become a subject matter expert in, learn from every day, pass that information to others, and, and leave your mark in the fire service, man, shit, sell out to it, dude. Sell out to it, get after it, and, and, and go spread your message. That's strong. I like it. I, I, think, th I think that's a very powerful message, um, and I think that – I agree with you when it comes to regards of trying to be a master of all. It's very, very hard to do. And I think as you progress after several years in the fire service, there's a lot of, there's a lot of opportunity. 
And I think that in the beginning, you need to leave yourself open to all the potential and opportunities that are that are presented. Um, and then find something that you truly enjoy. Because at the end of the day, whether career or volunteer, it's a passion. Most of us, this is a passion. Um, and, and, you know, and with that, you want to do something that makes you happy. Um, you know, so if it's rescue services, go after rescue and go all in. I love that. Sell yourself out to whatever, whatever makes you happy. Bro, I, I, I agree with you 100%. <clears throat> where does the, where does the Mayday the the mayday side of all this come in then because you have a very uh successful uh lecture that and hands-on that you do uh you teach at a lot of conferences all over the country and it's it's titled the mayday mindset the art of learning training and surviving and so i want to go through a couple things here and i'd love to just get some background as to how this became a prevalent topic for you and why you've gone all in you've sold yourself out to this uh, topic. And, you know, you have, I was reading some of the stuff online and you had sent me some stuff and it's success under stress, which I underlined that I think that's a good way to put it. Um, and then let me, let me hit this sentence and I'd love to get some, uh, you know, explanation a little bit for you to dive in a little bit, uh, further on it. Um, over the last decade, firefighter writ and survival classes became increasingly, increasingly linear and cookie cutter in their approach to these nonlinear life or death events. Mm. 28 years, 29 years for me in the fire service. When I first started, I don't think there was a mayday or I don't think writ and fast teams existed. Uh, I don't think there were mayday policies. And this is a short, tw just about 25 years ago in the fire service. We've come a very long way, but with that comes uh, the monotony of it. Now it becomes too forward too front front faced and now all of a sudden it becomes maybe a little bit of a white noise when it needs to be loud and clear up front give me your understanding of cookie cutter in their approach to these non-linear life or death events what does that mean okay so uh thanks for the opportunity to explain that yeah and what i what i so the mayday mindset uh became a thing and honestly the name mayday mindset it was just something like everything else you hear about in all these stories it just came up in some random conversation with a buddy and there it became a thing. No, okay, we'll call it the Mayday Mindset. Believe it or not, and uh, it was called something else before that made no sense. And actually the name belonged to somebody else and I wasn't aware of it and that became a whole fiasco, but we'll leave that story for another day. <laughs> but I was, doing the same, I was doing the same class with a different name and the best thing that could happen for me was that I accidentally used somebody else's name with uh, very innocently. I never even knew the guy until I found out afterwards. Great guy now. We get along great. Yeah. And actually uses information. But... Um, my approach to teaching Mayday mindset or anything that has to do with Mayday, and you touched up on hu human stress and effective under stress, successful under stress. And the reason I got drawn to it is because uh, very early in my career, I realized that we had an experience problem as a fire service, not just South Florida where I'm, where I, my slice of the fire world, right? I'm talking about the entire fire service, which is the reason why things like Project Mayday and those components all became so tremendously popular when they first came out and people were like hanging every word off of that they taught off of these numbers right myself included I, I relied on those numbers very heavily just because of the fire service and where i was going is that we have an uh, an experience problem we have an experience problem because the numbers don't make sense as a nation we're doing anywhere from 350 to 360 depending what year you look at the numbers thousand structured fires per year 
as a nation since 1977, we're killing an average, on average, you know, not counting 9-11, or sorry, 2001, which was an anomaly, an average of 100 guys and girls a year, right? During that time, if you're looking at, you're looking at these numbers as well, and you're talking to people that actually keep this data relevant, you're looking at an average of only 9 to 12 line of duty deaths annually that occur while conducting firefighting activities. Yes. So out of the 100 members that are being lost or considered line of duty deaths, only 9 to 12 of them are being you know, killed inside structural component, inside a structure of conducting search, it, rescue, right. or In the course of right? firefighting, right, yes. Exactly. And out of those 9 to 12, Jeremy, only 50% of those had an actual RIT activation associated with their line of duty deaths. So let's say you have, let's go high with the number 12. Let's say that year we lost 12 members, God forbid, uh, line of duty deaths inside a structure while conducting firefighting activities as classified, right? And we only have six actual RIT deployments based on the data. So that means annually we're looking at six RIT deployments that may or may not have been successful. In this case, they were not. And then we're using the information gained from those six human experiences under stress to conduct entire training programs or say that they actually work or do not work. And those numbers uh, do not match our experience. So we mm. have an experience problem as a country. Um, I looked at the numbers this morning. That's my only preparation for the show. <laughs> as I was leaving Home Depot right before we do, after we talked, <laughs> I, I, I looked at my numbers, which I do every day. And if we count the two members that we tragically lost last night in Newark, yeah. we're, yes. at 40, uh, we're at 41 firefighter deaths this year. Mm. Out of those 41 firefighter deaths, four Oh, those 41 will be conducting firefighting activities. The rest were all non-fire activities. So even this year, the numbers are staying the way they're supposed to. Maybe by the end of the year, we're still at four, but maybe we're at eight. And out of those eight, you'll have four RIT deployments. So the information needs to match because what we don't fully understand, we do not fully possess, right? So when we do these classes, these cookie cutter, this is the way you take your air pack off. This is the way you call your lunar. This is the way you put your air pack on. This is the way you call a mayday. This is the way you come out a window. This is the way you drag your buddy. This is the way you reach into your pocket and pull out your double figure eight rake or short pulley on a knot, make believe knot that you're going to put together with oven mitts and zero visibility. All right. Um, during an actual stressful mayday, those linear skills have not been proven to be successful in real life application. And if you just do a little bit of education, look at the numbers, see what this information is telling us, talk to people that have had these incidents, look at the near misses, understand human behavior, human behavior patterns under stress, you, you quickly realize that that linear approach that we took as an industry for many, many years, since Rick became a thing or Rick, um, are, are not successful. And if we don't train our members the right way, we're going to keep um, hitting the same walls over and over and over away. So my entire premise, you know, short, you know, long answer to a short question, my entire premise around the Mayday mindset was to create training that's based on a healthy balance of evidence and studies and shit that we know works under stress to conduct and create automatic, successful, reliable behaviors and responses. If once it becomes automatic, you cannot control it because it's triggered by emotion. And if we just practice, 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 and hope that practice makes perfect, we're going to fail because practice only makes permanent. So mm. you create automaticity, which is what it's called, that automatic subconscious response that we refer to as automaticity. Yeah. Once you create automaticity and you create a reflex to an emotional uh, trigger, the problem with automaticity is that it cannot differentiate between right and wrong, desired or undesired. Mm. And you get yourself in a bind. 
So if your training matters and how you prepare for these things matters, because at the end of the day, it's a human event. People are dying, your friends are dying, or you're dying. And everything you do or don't do has terminal consequences. And nothing else we do in the fire ground, Jeremy, nothing else, whether it's searching, stretching, throwing lines, forcing doors, or going beyond our pre-connects, uh, has that level of consequence attached to it. That was uh, that was pretty powerful, man. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I sat back and I just listened, and I, uh, you know, bravo. Um, so many things there to unpack. Uh, you have a couple things that you hit on. Adult education, right? Yes. When you're talking about mindset, what is adult education? I was reading through your your presentations and and your uh, you know your word that you put out in regards to this. Adult education is what. So adult education is a way that I believe you have to train firefighters who are on the job in these type of skill sets. Mm. So uh, my audience is no longer the minimum standard guys, nice. the day one, day one probies. My audience, when I go to these fire conferences, are men and women that have been on the job as long or longer than I have most of the time, yep. uh, depending where I'm at. Um, some of them are in parts of the country where they haven't fired in you know, 12 years, and the other guys just made 12 fires this week. Right. So the audience is very broad and you sure. understand that you do the same traveling and talking mm -hmm. and you, you're always talking to men and women from different spans of life, different cultures, different, different perspectives on different skills. Now, everything that you or I do is no different than everything they, they do on their job. If they've been taught something and it's been successful, it becomes automatic and they're going to default to it each and every time when they go through that hard drive search of how the fuck do I get out of this situation? Yeah. Right. What worked last time? automatic response and it's, a it's as fast as the light switch it happens i may ride on the truck these days but i still keep my original snagger tool by modus fire rescue on me at all times just in case those guys on the engine need some help moving the line the snagger is great for that and many more things it's also great for used for breaking tempered glass or in a pinch as a spanner wrench so head over to modusfirerescue.com and use code the size up one word to save yourself 5%. This episode's brought to you by Taylor's Tins. Taylor and his crew at Taylor's Tins have been manufacturing aluminum helmet fronts since 2017. With over 200,000 tins in the market, they are a leader in the helmet front space. Custom design, one-offs to department orders, they can turn them around within 24 to 48 hours. Customer service is what they pride themselves on, and they provide nothing but top-shelf product and service to their customers. Check them out at taylorstins.com and check out their full line of product offering. They've always been a very strong supporter since day one with the National Fire Radio podcast and platform, and Taylor and his crew have become dear friends of ours, and we appreciate the support. And at checkout... For a little extra bonus, use coupon code NFR sent me. That's NFR sent me for a discount on your order. Exclusions do apply. Anyway, check out taylorstins.com for the latest and greatest offerings from Taylor and his crew. And in the words of Taylor, stop burning up leather. Right. Um, so when dealing with adults and adult education, specifically in the world that we're operating in, where it's adult education under stress, I constantly remind the classes and the people I talk to that, when I show them a skill, an overly simplified gross motor skill uh, to, for self-rescue or entanglement release or coming in or out of your air pack or accessing a pocket or a pant or, or converting your air pack or using a pickoff strap, when I teach them a skill and they look at it and they're like, wow, that is so simple, 
and I remind them that it, the reason is simple is because I'm not teaching the person who's sitting in front of me today taking this class. So the person sitting in front of me today with a heart rate of 60 to 80, relaxed, using the entire prefrontal cortex of his brain to cognitively process the information I'm putting out during the class and that part of the brain that's, that's responsible for two plus two equals four. Yeah. Right. I'm not talking to that brain. I'm talking to the middle brain brain. And I'm talking to the person who's going to be involved in responding or calling their mayday. And that's the brain I'm focused on training. So in adult education, I have to take into account the person's personal experience on the fire service and in life and how they relate to the incident or the skill that I'm teaching them. If they have done this before, I will let them know how their skill can apply to the new skill I'm teaching. But if the new skill that I'm teaching is not relatable to what they've done in the past, and I cannot show them how it works in conjunction with what they already know, then they are no longer going to listen to that skill nor learn it. So you're spinning your wheels with them and they're spinning their wheels by listening to you. So anytime that I'm doing adult education, I got to kind of remind myself and the student that A, I'm talking to the middle brain because I'm teaching Mayday and that's the part of the brain that's going to be activated. So during the class, I'm not talking to the front brain, I'm talking to the middle brain. So all my skills and drills and lectures and conversations and even the, the common language that I create during the class for the students to use in training when they train for this on their own is to target that middle brain. And then second to that, I understand that I'm teaching somebody whose skills already exist at some level and who already have a perception of what works and doesn't. And if I don't take their perception of, of my skill and their skill together into account, then they're not going to be learning and they're not going to be able to apply this and under real stress. Yeah, you got to find that universal language, right? And that that's what I I really what I, the takeaway for me right there with this adult learning question that I asked you is very much that, right? I think what's important is that the people that are out there teaching and instructing and pushing this job forward have a knack for conversing and educating in a way that kind of translates their methodology in regards to respect for how somebody else knows how to do it, and you find that common language in between you yeah. so that they come along for the journey to learn what you're trying to teach. I think that's super important. Avoid predictable fire service training failures and overcome several commonly encountered learning obstacles. So yeah. those are your words from your presentation. Avoid predictable fire service training failures. Why are we teaching people to play dead and we're coming for them? It's horrible. It's horrible. Um, those are predictable failures. Um, the, use, the overuse of mannequins when unnecessarily uh, predictable failures. Um, you name it. There's so many predictable fire service teaching failures out there that, that, that are not helping our members because you're creating, a, you're creating a slide that doesn't need to be part of their freaking presentation in their brain when they're looking for that solution. Um, Don't we have to teach our people to fight for their lives? Like if you if you get in a position and I want to go through a couple things because I got a couple bullet points that I wrote down that are important to me when we start talking about maydays, we start talking about down firefighter trapped or lost firefighters, self survival, right? I mean, you right. you have to fight for your life, right? If I'm in a position where I transmit a mayday that is directly impacting my survivability or welfare on a fire ground, right? This isn't like fire is auto-exposing, you know, mayday, you know, we got issues here above an urgent or we, you know, this is when you, when you or somebody in your care is immediately in harm's way and we go to call that mayday, why aren't we teaching these people to fight for their fucking lives? 
Uh, it's just not part of those linear curriculum. That's it's just, bullshit. It's not part and, of the norm. That is one of the things that drives me bananas when I listen to some of these people teach or the or the or the the red book manual of fast team, writ team, Rick teams, whatever you want to call it, mayday procedures. Why aren't we teaching our people to fight for their lives? Um, they're they're just very linear in their approach, Jeremy. This is something that uh that they uh, they're teaching based on. Uh, no information or affirmation. It's just uh, a skill that's been taught for a while. So they're going to go straight into the skills and drills that's, and not cover the the why or the how. That's it, brother. You know? Like, I, And that's the thing that drives me nuts is like you were hitting on it before and you're talking about experience and knowledge and science and data. Like these are all things now that since the last 20 years of Maydays, you know, the formalization of Maydays on the fire ground, formalization of fast team activations, writ team activations, the formulation of what they're jobs and skills are on a fire ground we have probably 20 plus years of active data right because i was referring to this before when i first came to the fire service none of this shit really was a popular topic at the time right and it's become this topic that i think has become too passe and white noise now and we're not focusing on what you were talking about the experience the data the science right and all these things putting and compiling all that data together to then provide a program of training and education for are minimum standard firefighters coming through the fire academy to the people that you're talking to at conferences we need to be doing a better job as a fire service on educating our people how to survive the fire ground 1000 percent, and um and and you can de-layer this as much as you want the the self-rescue component uh is priceless um the data supports it we understand that our best form of you know rescue is self-rescue um, when I talk to chief officers of uh, the guys that run command at an incident or a fire, like their primary duty after they find out where that down member is, is keeping that member in the fight. They become, you know, they become corner uh, fight coaches at, at, on a, you know, prize fight boxing in a boxing prize fight. I'm sorry. And when that, that, that fighter is the mayday down fireman and they got to sit there and coach them and coach them and, and keep them in the fight and tell them what they're doing wrong and what they're doing right. And, and, Activate as much as possible during that freaking situation. Activate that prefrontal cortex to get them to think two plus two equals four and get them into self-rescue mode. And I always use the example of self-rescue as the following. And if you just bear with me for a second, yeah, go. I'll, make it, I'll make it brief. Um, my girl and I, we have a dog, right? His name is Douglas. And she likes to name our dogs by, like, you know, pr proper, like, English names. So his <laughs> yeah. name is, like, Douglas Arthur Engelhart. Crazy name, right? Listen, I don't judge. Go ahead. Exactly. I do. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's our dog. I can't yeah, take yeah, full yeah. credit for the thing. Right. Um, it's, not, it's a family dog. So I got to deal with it. Sure. But anyways, I love Dougie. He's a, he's a home run. But anytime I take this is where I talk about self-rescue and Dougie. When I take Dougie out for a walk, every time we come across the neighbor's yard, he has a dog named Max. Him and Max meet at the fence, tails, you know, tucked between their legs, hair spiked, ears pinned back, teeth showing, kicking up dirt. And they're both about freaking a foot tall. You know, these two little tiny miniature things, and they're growling and kicking up dirt and barking at each other, and the leash is tight. And I'm pulling on the leash, and he's tight, and I'm talking to him, and I'm, and I'm yelling, Doug, Doug, no, Doug, Doug, no, Doug, no. And, and there's no response. And Dougie's not deaf or hard of hearing because at 2 in the morning, if I open a bag of chips, he's at my feet from a dead sleep from upstairs. Mm. Right? But what's happening? In that moment, similar to a down fireman, he's in full fight or flight. Yes. Okay? That fight or flight, the target is in front of me. Everything I do has dire consequences, so I cannot focus on my master or my owner saying my name. Same thing happens when you have a down member that yells into the radio, mayday, 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 
and now you're the chief officer and you start asking for stupid jargon like lunars, this, that, or the other. That man, that woman, that member is in a knife fight in an elevator and they are unarmed. And here you are popping the door open and asking him what multiplication tables are 18 times 22. He has no time for that. His target is the knife in front of him and he's in a knife fight in a box. So anything that you can do to loosen that member's leash, to loosen the leash, to get him or her back in the fight is going to increase their survivability by helping them go from middle brain, full fight or flight activation to prefrontal cortex, two plus two equals four. And now they're in the fight and you're giving them back their 47% self-rescue uh, opportunity while adding the RIT team, another 11%, while adding the companies around and near him or his own, another 24 and 26%. So you're giving him the full freaking uh, ensemble of rescue opportunities, but your job and your only job should be like, hey, Jeremy, this is Rob. Where are you, buddy? This is what I need you to do for me. Find the wall. How's your air, Jeremy? Uh, I don't want to talk to engine four, com engine four, Bravo. This is main street command. That has no place on the fire ground during an emergency. That's a human situation and it needs to be dealt with in a human manner. The information I need, I can get it from my freaking comfortable climate controlled buggy and my polyester shirt if I need it. Uh, you you hit on something that I have written down that I wanted to get to, and this is a perfect segue to it, is the command function during a mayday. And yeah. we're teaching firefighters on the fire ground how to, how to help themselves, how to set themselves up for a successful, uh, you know, uh, outcome in, in a mayday situation. I mean, as much as we're, we're not, as much as we might be failing in some regards, we're still teaching that aspect of it, whether yeah. we should be doing a better job or not. That's, um, that's not this part of the conversation. This part of the conversation is when we teach mayday in written fast team operations, why aren't we teaching command staff how to manage them correctly? I don't see that many programs out there for furthering education in how the command structure is dealing with and understanding how to deal with maydays over the radio, as well as the command presence of directing under such duress and stress, right? So, like, right. we need to be doing better at that as well. Absolutely. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm never even giving it much thought, right? Um, until right now. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. Cause it's almost the same thing. Like, you know, my buddy Basil, he teaches a very similar class, right? Yeah. And he's, he's very nuts and bolts about it. He's, he's all about the skills and drills and this guy's a machine. If I go down, he's the guy who won't come before me, not me. Sure. hundred percent. Right. And um, so, but all these classes lack that incident command component where, you know, there isn't really a, uh, incident commander for RIT operations class as being taught. That's right. By the men and women that are actually, you know, balls deep in the subject matter. That's right. It's always being, it's always being taught by some type of leadership uh, cadre or someone who's really focused on, on blue book or what do they call it? Blue card or NIMS or, and that kind of stuff. And Garbage. Just, and RIT is just like a, like a drop screen on one of the slides that they're going to cover real quick, but they got to get back to like how to keep the firehouse happy, you know? So uh, I don't. I, I hope you pursue that angle. I really do. I hope that you know through this conversation that yourself or somebody that listens yeah. to this understands that there needs to be yeah. more work done to educate our command, the guys that are riding in the buggies, the guys that are riding in positions to make uh, directional decisions on the fire ground operationally. There needs to be something in place to educate them about a mayday 
over the radio during a fire. Because I can tell you from the many, many maydays that I've listened to, uh, recordings and readings and so on, many of them are not handled correctly. And I think it's a direct correlation to the fact that once guys promote up, they limit their growth and understanding in the job because they've been doing it for so long that they stop themselves. They stunt their growth. And when you stunt your growth or the course isn't offered, there's nothing there to further their education and understanding the Mayday from a command perspective. I think this is something that needs to be brought to light. And I think you might be the guy that needs to do that. So I'm putting the spotlight on you, pal. I don't hate it, man. Honestly, it's a wide open market for like a a a real deal, one hundred percent, nothing but uh, red operations for the incident commander. You imagine sitting down with uh, 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 an assortment of chiefs from across the country that have dealt with serious mayday situations that maybe have been successful and maybe some haven't. And when you sit down and talk with those chiefs and you dive into the conversation with them and really get an understanding of what their mindset was, you're talking about the Mayday mindset. It's one thing to be the down firefighter. It's one thing to be the firefighter going in for the, for the find and removal. It's another for the guy that is so disconnected that he's only communicating over a radio. It's like a dispatcher. We never consider, we never consider the stress of the dispatcher for that initial call. And then they just hang up and they're like, I don't know how the call ended until an hour later. Right, like, couldn't do it. Yeah. yeah. So, like, if you think it. about that, man, I think we need to do a better job overall um, in, when it comes to that. Something else that bothers me too. I'm sorry to rant, man. I just, I'm, I'm. There's a couple things about this topic, touching rant, people. Rant, bro. Rant. I, I'm, why, I'm enjoying the hell out of this. Why are we in in teaching and talking and training? Are we not rolling around on the ground like a bunch of high school wrestlers with one another? We're afraid to touch our own guys. We have this. We have this fear of packaging and hugging and bear hugging in training, let alone if we have to do it in the real fire ground. But we're not even in training. Guys are afraid to touch one another. What the fuck? No, 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 no not in my firehouse, not in my fire ground, Good. not during the maiden mindset. Not at all. We are touching each other a lot. If you want to get touched by firemen, take the maiden mindset class. You are going to get touched and thrown. And but do you find do you straight. find that your students sometimes are a little bit uncomfortable with it? Like we Jeremy, have to teach the comfort of it. Jeremy, the most common feedback I get after a hands-on training class, the most common feedback that I'll get uh, in between breaks, in between rotations, during some downtime is I had no idea how hard it was to move a real firefighter. 100%. These are guys that are from on the job all over the place in real fire center parts of our country. That's the number one thing because they're just not used to doing it with each other in training. And anything in our level of exposure controls your level of comfort in anything we do. So, it's, you know, it's not they're not bad guys or bad girls. It's just they they just don't know what they don't know. And they they're fully dependent on their training divisions to uh, educate them and 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 teach them the way. And when, when they come out there and we're rolling around the ground, dragging each other around, uh, kicking each other around, throwing each other out the window onto ladders and and through zero visibility, uh, man, they get smoked and they realize why. Um, that's those cookie cutter scenarios where you show up with a single engine company to the training ground. You walk, you, you know, tr- stroll into a concrete building with polished concrete floors and no furniture and pull out a mannequin and Hollywood smoke, get a high five, a cold Gatorade and a towel and told you the best engine company in the city. Why those scenarios are bullshit. And they've been fed a whole freaking uh, a bag of bullshit their whole career. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just that that's one thing that I've noticed in talking with people and I've I've watched different um down firefighter evolutions, mayday evolutions, and I watch people are timid. They're they're timid to touch one another to effectively 
help and remove or or be a part of a the equation of removing a firefighter and in training like we need to get up and close and personal you might have to stick your face in their crotch you might have to put their legs over your shoulders and yep. give them a lift up a step like we, we we can't be afraid to do that and i think the stigma of that you know of of the touching we need to yep. we need to just like understand that this is a physical job and so much of that comes with it so lose that part of it lose it can i add to that real quick yeah go yeah, um, and it's a very dangerous position to be in for any of us when the fire ground doesn't match our training. Mm, talk the about fire that. Ground, if the fire ground doesn't match your training and it's the first time that you're touching and pulling and grabbing, it's the first time you're doing anything on the fire ground. Uh, but let alone a down member or a victim, I mean, that's your Super Bowl. And, and if that doesn't match your training, you're not going to just all of a sudden figure this shit out and turn into MacGyver when your heart rate's 180 and you're on your knees below three feet because that's where life doesn't suck because you're in a room that's so hot and being fully encapsulated with no dexterity, no audio, no audio and muffled sounds because of smoke in your mask. That's not where you're going to figure shit out. Your brain is on overdrive. And if your automatic response to that situation is not one that you've been comfortable with in the past, you are going to fail, guys. You are going to fail. Shame on us if we think that we're better than that. Every single one of us will fail. And nothing that you did once at a fire conference is going to be available for you two years on the line, six months on the line. Nothing plateaus. Everything, everything, everything you learn is perishable. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's perishable for sure. And I think that's why now more than ever we need to make sure that our people that are making decisions from the back step all the way up through that command buggy are still continuing their education and pushing themselves further. And it doesn't just have to be, you know, a fire course, right? I mean, you've talked about uh, different aspects that are important to you to seek wisdom and guidance from outside of traditional fire service training literature, literature and methodology. To become a better person, to be a better firefighter, you need to be a good person. And that's better in yourself, physically, mentally. And mentally goes to the mindset that you talk about. And so I wanted to ask you about mindset. People listening to this are like, okay, this guy's talking about the Mayday mindset, this and that. We really haven't talked much about mindset per se, but I want to ask you this. I know, and you shared a story with me, that you got jammed up back in um, when you were on a USAR deployment to Haiti. Um, yeah. And you talked about getting jammed up in a supermarket while you yeah. guys were doing uh, search and recovery in a collapsed grocery store, correct? Give me a give yeah. me a little backstory on that because um, I I want to share that story with the listeners of the podcast so that they understand how quick things go. And you're the Mayday mindset guy. You're the guy that's talking about the importance of the Mayday, preparing for a Mayday, and then holy shit, how quick did it go down for you? So a very fortunate event. I'm very fortunate to have been there, very fortunate to have come out of it unscathed. Uh, several of us were. It was me and two other members that were involved in that uh, near miss, we'll call it, right? In the USAR world, we're not structural firefighting. We're, uh, we're, we're a rescue component in tech gear. And uh, I'll get into the story in a second. Yeah. But for the audience, for the people listening to this, whenever they get around to it, to understand and, and make it relatable, right? If you're laying, if picture yourself laying at home in the comfort of your bed with your wife or by yourself or however, whoever you sleep with, right? And two or three in the morning, someone just violently starts banging on your window. How are you going to wake up? You sit straight up. You sit straight up and your heart wants to come out of your chest. Absolutely. And you're, and you're ready to go. Okay. In that moment, in that mental state, multiply that times 10 and stay in that emotional component and that emotional reaction for the tenure and the duration of an entire mayday and try to process 
anything you learn during that mindset. And that's how you have to fucking teach. That's how you are. That's how you feel the entire time. If you do not know how to unwind yourself and get that prefrontal cortex back to thinking, that, that part of your body that made you sit bolt upright at three in the morning when somebody smashed in your window is your amygdala. The part that runs on emotion that kept us alive in, in caves when saber-toothed tigers were running around and we wanted to be the dominant species. That part of your brain has not gone away. And what happens immediately afterwards was like, oh, it's just a neighbor's car backfired. And you roll over and you go back to sleep. That logical cognitive, oh, it was just a neighbor's car. That's the modern brain that took years of evolution, but it's our new brain. Okay, that new brain has no place in a mayday. It's not active unless you train it to be active under stress. And that's not something that happens, happens automatically. Your entire mayday will be that guy banging on your window and you trying to remember the fucking lunar during that process. Yeah. Now, going back to the story, because I felt it. I felt like somebody was banging on the window for a good two minutes. Mm. And everything I did was automatic until my feet hit the street and someone pointed back and I looked back at the building for the first time since coming out of it. I, I, I can tell you, like other guys will tell you, it was like a movie in slow motion. So long story short, we were in the herd, uh, we, had, we had been deployed as a FEMA asset to the island of Haiti for a 7.5 magnitude earthquake. And you know, just real near, uh, Epicenter was real near the capital city of Port-au-Prince in Haiti, a very impoverished country with very uh, poor building construction at the time. They had been through a tremendous turmoil in the 80s and 90s. And um, they were just trying to get their infrastructure back. So already the whole nation's behind the eight ball. This large earthquake hit, lasted a couple minutes, and thousands and thousands and thousands of buildings came down. In total, um, the numbers came out to about 225,000 people were killed wow. in a matter of minutes. Yeah. 225,000 people were killed in a matter it. of minutes in a place the size of Rhode Island. Mm. All right. Um, that's unheard of at the time. So here we are in this environment I just described to you guys and we had uh, found what I would describe as a large big box like Walmart type uh, uh, supermarket called the Caribbean supermarket where we had like set up camp because uh, family members back in the states uh, primarily in Miami which has a large uh, immigrant Haitian population as well as other Caribbean islands uh, were reaching back to our members from Miami which is where our team is from and saying that they were getting text messages and uh, phone calls from inside this collapsed supermarket wow. in, outside the city. So through these channels, uh, we ended up finding this place and getting that mission given to us with a little, you know, a little, a little finagling here and there, you know, and, and talking to the right people, shaking the right hands. We got put on this job because we were one of many teams internationally that were there for help. So we got lucky enough to get put on this job, um, set up camp. Uh, we stopped hitting all the other structures in the neighborhood, which were like what I would describe like low-hanging fruit. You know, single family, single story, go in there. It might have two or three, two or three deceased, but you got one guy who's halfway out the window and that'd be, that'd be low hanging fruit. So you, it was good for your numbers if you did that as a team. But if you actually sat down, camped out and committed to one single structure, um, very few teams did that. Yeah. And we actually did that. We camped out, stayed there. And fortunately, you know, we ended up, um, we found a lot of deceased in that building and upwards of 40, but uh, we ended up uh, pulling out uh, six actual live victims um, several days after the earthquake, even wow. um, they, had, they had survived in there for days, uh, including, uh, to my knowledge, and and whoever's listening, because Google this or look it up, I'll probably do it after the podcast. Including the only American citizen that was rescued uh, in Haiti was done by our Florida Task Force team. Wow. Uh, she was there visiting family, and she is an American citizen, and we pulled her out of that structure wow. uh, three days after the earthquake. Incredible. Um, anyhow, 
while we were in there, so this is a picture of a big box building. It was three stories in height. Each floor was different. One floor was a furniture store. The other floor was a supermarket. The floor above were like offices and storage. It all pancaked down to about one story, right? But sitting on top of the entire storage area that, that was basically the subfloor of like the, 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 of the, of the building. So the subfloor held up and it held up to first floor. And it, once you start making that pile, you were actually in a pile with a three-story building. And um, inside the pile, we're in there digging about three days. And uh, we had made contact through our actual equipment that we carry our, our ultrasound equipment, our listening devices, our search technicians and cameras and coring tools. We had, we had made contact with uh, uh, at least one male, one female, uh, muffled communications and sound and started digging for them for, for day and night, day and night, day and night, trying to get through them. And um, during the day of my incident, uh, we were working, our work rest cycles were really, really like, and I don't want to make the number up because there's going to be somebody listening. No, that's okay. I, yeah, right? it's fine. They, they, were, they, were, they were really short work rest cycles yeah. just because the environment was so like right. uh, not tenable, yeah. right? And we go in there, break, break, break for a while, switch, break, break, break for a while, cut, 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 remove debris and tunnel, 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 and then get removed by our bosses and send another three guys in. Then you go for rehab and get back in line. And so we were doing that for a while to keep the bodies fresh. We don't show up there with a whole with mutual aid and a bunch of departments. There's 80 of us. And out of those 80, you got bosses and non non-essential. So there aren't 80 workers. You probably have, you know, anywhere from 50 to 58 workers. Everybody else is administrative support staff. So 58 of us got to get this job done no matter how long it takes for two weeks. And so work rest became a thing. We're in the hole, Jeremy. And um, my buddy, Timmy Gleason, who I work very, very closely with now, um, was my boss on that deployment. He was a what I am today, which is a rescue team manager in the world of USAR and FEMA, a rescue team manager will be the equivalent of like a, a division chief of that division mm -hmm. or like a, or like a, a, of that actual skill. So uh, as a rescue team manager, you're basically, uh, you're the sock chief, right? And uh, Timmy was that bo was my boss at that time, being that I was assigned to the rescue division as a, as a rescue specialist. Right. I'm in, the, I'm in there with two other guys, we're breaking. So we got to, if the, if the guy, if you can picture this, we walked into this building, uh, went underground, uh, round collapse, a bunch of collapse shit, uh, threw a, a 16 foot ladder up to a, a freezer storage unit that had held up. And it was all of like 16 feet tall. So you were like right at the lip when you got off the ladder. And then that um, had about a maybe three foot crawl space between the top of the ace of the freezer and the actual floors above you that had collapsed onto this concrete uh, beam. Yeah, we had made a, we had made a hole through that eight inch concrete into the floor above. So we were had to climb up the thing, get on the freezer, um, go, break that hole, cut through the rebar, get into the floor above, and then now you were in the aisles and you're in the guts of this building. So once you were in the aisles, we had to crawl down this aisle and it was about 24 inches high and about three feet three feet wide. So you're on your elbows and knees and you're you're pushing yourself through there. And all you have is your headlamp, a lot of dust. You can imagine all the merchandise has been rotting for three days and you're on your belly sliding through what used to be a grocery store and what's holding the roof above you up is the, the shelves that separate the aisles with still the merchandise in it yeah. compressed down to about three feet. Wow. And um, at, once you got to the end of the aisle, opposite to where the hole we, we made entry on was in, you were probably about a good 20 to 25 feet in, uh, in a straight line. And then, uh, um, you, you, we were making a hole through the actual aisle shelves to the aisle to the what would be the right of me at the time. As we're taking turns breaking this hole and cutting the, the stuff around it, it's my turn. So my buddy starts cutting first, and then Timmy Gleason's there watching my back as my boss. 
and then it's my turn to go cut. So me and the guy switch. You can't even turn around. So we got to kind of like turn to our sides. He switches. He crawls backwards. I crawl forward. I get in the spot. And now it's the tool that he was using takes a shit on me. So I have to grab a breaker. So I have a, I have a what we refer to a, the Hilti brand makes mm-hmm. a breaker. I have a, I have a Hilti breaker with me, a small breaker. And I'm and I'm and it's basically like a, like a little like a like a pile driver. And I'm sitting there. So I have a little jackhammer. And I'm sitting there with what we we refer to in the construction world as a jackhammer for the non non sock guys and I'm breaking through the aisle next to me on my left shoulder fully on my side as I'm breaking right I start feeling what I thought was concrete coming from the floor above hitting my helmet and I'm thinking that it's me vibrating the actual yeah. floor above right. which already has cracks in it which we knew about but we knew it was safe because our structural engineers that travel with us had told us we can be in there and barring any like major aftershocks well guess what happened we had a major aftershock um, it was uh, after we got back home, the numbers were ran years later. We found out that during our two, uh, 15 days in, in the country of Haiti, uh, we were hit by 47 aftershocks, wow. right? Uh, I couldn't tell you I got hit by 47 at the time, but I do remember this one and maybe another two. Yeah. Um, so I'm on my side, brother. And, um, I'm breaking, breaking, breaking. I told you about the concrete. I look up and it's coming down now. So I look back at the guys behind me. And they're already knees and elbows crawling backwards. So you can't even turn around. It's so tight. So they're going straight back 25 feet. Um, Timmy Gleason is in front of me at the time because he took a little nook in front of me uh, just so he can see where I'm at. So he's the deepest in the hole. And I remember the last vivid thought I have, Jeremy, of getting out of there before the the actual Mayday situation was, A, um, I got to get out of here. B, don't kick the guy behind me in the face. Right, because I'm crawling backwards, he's yep. crawling backwards. Right. And where's Timmy? So I looked up at Timmy and I vividly remember in slow motion the jackhammer, the hilti breaker in the air, firing his last two times. Takata, takata, takata. I just slowly fell onto the ground. So I just let it go in the air. Jeez. And uh, the, that's how everything slows down for you. It's actually true. And uh, man, after that, it was just freaking instinct, guys. It was uh, Timmy called the Mayday in on the radio, he was the boss of the radio. We crawled out the hole, made it. The building was shaking. The pipe that we were in that at one point was linear and appeared solid was moving like a snake. So we were inside the belly of the snake. At any minute, I just expected the floors above to be lights out. And I was wow. and hoping it was fast. And uh, I crawled out the hole, hit the ladder, and this is where instant kicked in. I was told that I did a ladder slide. I did a hook and go and put my knees and elbows on the beams and forearms, and I was gone. And on the ground, and Timmy was on the ladder, and he followed suit. He was the last man off being the boss. And it wasn't until, like I told you after that, where I touched the street and the, everybody's faces and eyeballs wanted to come out of their head. There must have been, like, another 40 guys, you know, on standby on the sidewalk that had evacuated as well. And I looked back, and I saw this entire collapsed three-story pile of rebar and freaking what we refer to as widowmakers, just big chunks of concrete yeah. waving in the air like a freaking, like, a, like windmills. Wow. Just in the like the tremendous amount of energy that it took to move that building the way it did, and uh, it took a minute to gather myself and talk to the guys and realize what hit me. But again, they did a great job at being those corner fight coaches and of keeping me in the fight, reminding me what our mission was, reassuring that we were there to complete this task, that the people were still in the building, and that I had a job that was unfinished, and. We all went back in there and finished the job and took those people out later that night. What was um, what, early morning? But, but I mean, this thing went fast, man. 
and your your uh, memory of it slowed way down, right? So, like, what I find always very interesting when I hear stories like this of, you know, fight or flight, survival, like all those types of stories is a lot of times things slow down, actually, um, as much as you are. And you, you responded in a flight mode, like, I got to get the hell out of here because fighting wasn't going to do anything in that situation. This is, yeah. I need to remove myself from this environment because the environment's going to kill me. Right. And so that's where your understanding and knowledge and training and instinct, right, kicked in. Right. Yes. But your mindset, though, physically it kicked in and you're like, you know, your mind fired. I got to get out of here. And then it goes to getting out. But like your mindset, though, it's slowed down. Right. The vision of it, watching the details of it and, and so on. I mean, how long did it take you to remove yourself from this building? It must have taken us maybe. 90 seconds. Yeah. Maybe maybe two minutes. It felt like a lifetime. Yeah. It felt like a lifetime. I'm telling you, I don't remember. I remember what I, I remember the story. Exactly what I told you. The, the other 25 feet, we traveled backwards. I don't remember. Coming onto the freezer, I don't remember. The ladder slide, I don't remember it. And I don't remember traveling through the storage area up to the street level up to until I hit the sidewalk. And I was up on, on my feet that it, everything came back to me. There was no listening. There was no dude. They were just banging on my window at 2 a.m. the whole time. Yeah. You know, 2 a.m. Listen, um, it happens a lot. You talk to guys. So what I do now, Jeremy, as well, and, and, and I actually never even talk about this on any class or conference. Mm. Like there's only so much information you can get from guys and girls like myself or sure. books. I understand. So anytime that I hear about men or women that are involved in Maydays, I reach out to them on social media. And you'd be surprised how many of them are willing to talk about yeah. it. Yeah. And yeah, I learned sure. so much about I learned so much about Mayday and human reaction from guys and girls that are involved in it. Um, like so much of it is exactly the same, bro, because we're human. And that's part of the mindset. You have to train humans to respond to the mayday. You can't train firefighters. Like they have some type of superpower because they're in that gear and they're going to react different from other humans. We're just humans in bunker gear that put ourselves in a position to serve and make a difference. If we are not prepared realistically to save our, save ourselves, then we're going to fail, man. And that's the mindset I keep when I'm teaching, when I'm specifically, I'm sorry, this skill. Yeah. Well, brother, listen, man, uh, very powerful episode and hour with you. I mean, that's how quick as it goes, pal. Can you imagine that? Like that was an hour already? That was crazy. And we're just scratching the surface. I, I know it. That. I know. And I could talk to you for hours and I'm not, I'm not like ending this in, in the next 30 seconds here, but I wanted you to be aware that like, it was important for me to get that story out there for you. Um, I know you could care less if it's told or not, I'm sure. But I know what for me though, right. When I'm, I like to consider myself like a storyteller when I have guests on the show and I like to kind of start in the beginning and work our way up through and, and find some pivotal moments in your career that, mm-hmm you know, sets you forward. And, you know, I have to believe that that situation that you experienced in Haiti, it was not a structural fire. It was a rescue operation with a structural collapse. But that Mm -hmm. mind, but understanding and dissecting, I'm sure you've sat back and dissected, just like you said, you like to reach out to people that have had Mayday experiences to dissect what they did, what their thought process was, the physicality of it, what they went through, right? All of that is super important. Yeah. And I'm sure you did that with your own experience too, which has led you to be able to talk about this type of mayday mindset um, for other firefighters. It's absolutely, it was a part, it was a four year process of trying to figure out how I can uh, avoid reacting the way I reacted, even though it was a favorable outcome uh, for all of us. But how do I take something back from that 
to actually help everybody else who may find themselves jammed up. Um, and the best thing that I was able to come with, and it's been a growing process. The class has never been the same twice. Yeah, I promise. I believe that. I never, never ever have ever have I ever done a podcast the same, a lecture presentation the same, or a hot class the same because it's a growing process. The more I learn about human behavior myself and these maydays, the more the class changes, man. And um, I love it because I I just want to make a difference one day with someone and make sure that everyone gets to go home and retire and walk their kids down the aisle. Because the reason we do this job is to serve. But at the end of the day, man, we got to be able to hang it up and exploit that pension. <laughs> well, that's very true. That's very true. And I want to say this too, right? Just to circle back for a half a second here. Yeah. People need to tell their stories. You just told your story. And I appreciate you for doing that and, and you know, having the opportunity on a podcast like this where you can share your story so other people can hear it. But this is where storytelling matters in the fire service, right? Part of training doesn't mean that we have to go out to the parking lot to an acquired structure to cut up a, 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 a derelict vehicle. Part of training is sitting around and, and educating one another with stories as well. And when people have experiences like a mayday on a fire ground or they were involved in a firefighter packaging and removal of a downed firefighter, like mm -hmm. these are stories that need to be told and shared so that we can learn from it. I've never been in a collapsed building like you. I've never understood what that must have been like. I can't understand it because I've never been in that situation. And in fact, I've never been on a fire ground involved in a mayday firefighter rescue recovery. I've never been right. involved with one. It just hasn't presented itself on a fire ground. It doesn't mean that it's not going to happen tomorrow. So I right. have to do my part, not only on the training aspect of it, but I also need to understand and listen to the stories that are out there and being told. And I'm willing to listen, but I need people to be willing to tell their stories. And I think that that matters. And so that has a lot to do with why we have National Fire Radio with the podcast is because I'm a firm believer that storytelling, part of that is through experience. And when people have experiences that I haven't had and they can share a story with me, I learned from that. And I think that that's important to talk about for sure. I absolutely, absolutely love everything you're saying, dude. Um, we can sit down and talk about this forever. I'm actually looking forward to crossing paths with you, man. <laughs> this is a great conversation. It's been uh, fantastic. Learning, yeah. Learning is about making connections and associations. If you, That's part of adult learning and just life in general. If you cannot connect and make the association, you're not going to learn. Stories create connections, associations. If, if my teaching is not relatable, then you're not going to learn from me. As instructors, we have to be vulnerable, we have to be relatable and credible. And a healthy balance of those three things make you a successful instructor. Too much of either and not enough of the other, you're just another talking head. I love it. I love it. Rob Ramirez, thank you, brother. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. It's an absolute honor to meet you finally, to have this conversation. I'll tell you one thing, this was a, a fantastic episode. I really enjoyed the conversation, man. And uh, I look forward to crossing paths with you. It would be great. We'll, we'll bump into each other at one of these conferences, I'm sure. Um, but uh, I, I just want to say this, man. Keep up the hustle. Keep pushing. Keep changing your program. Keep making your program better and better and better. And uh, just keep pushing forward. I say that to everybody. Keep pushing forward and keep making this job good, man. So thank you very much for spending some time with me today. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Your impact in the fire service is tangible, brother. Um, you're making a difference. Keep your foot on the freaking pedal. I love what you're doing. Stay wide open, bro. Thanks, pal. I appreciate you. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to sign off the podcast, and uh, I'll come right back to you. So hang on one sec. Oh, if uh, anybody wants to reach out to you, Rob, I'm sorry. Where can people find you? How can they reach out to you? An email, phone number, a website? What do you got? Social media? Oh. 
all of the above. Uh, anytime you want to talk to me, I'm social media all day, every day, sometimes too much. I try to stay away from it. I got a baby at home. So Instagram, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. My email is Rob Ramirez at MaydayMindset.com. And you want to call me on my cell phone. I will do that too. 305, that's Miami-Dade County, 407-4708, 305-407-4708. And I'll see you down the road. Take care, y'all. Brother, thank you for sharing your information. I'm sure you're going to get some great feedback from this and maybe some questions too. And that's what this is all about, man. Telling, telling stories and sharing knowledge. I appreciate you. Hang right here. I'll get right back to you. And everyone, thank you. For those that were part of the podcast today, thank you. I appreciate you for joining us because how I like to end every podcast is very simply this. Take this, take what you heard today on the podcast, take it back to the firehouse and talk about it. Because when we talk about the job, we're making the job better. Thank you for tuning in. Any insights, ideas, and wisdom, send it over to podcast at nationalfireradio.com. The podcast is back. Sorry for the two-week hiatus, but we got a lot more great guests like Rob Ramirez and others coming out. And uh, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you at the next one. Jeremy, National Fire Radio.